It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 254, The End of the Roman Republic. In Rome, the second triumvirate rules the state. The people's rights are eroding away. The dynamic government of the republic starts to wane in favor of the most powerful politicians in the land. What started with Marius and Sulla has descended into a chaos of power grabs. The common people obviously suffer the most when grain shipments from Egypt get blocked and the wealth from conquest fails to support the populace in Rome. But it's the value system and culture that made Rome great that starts to wane. The Republic, which had such a tenacity to raise another army after losing three of them in quick succession, starts to lose its edge. And despite its waning edge, it still has an accumulation of overwhelming superiority and fighting strength and tactics and wealth at this stage over its neighbors. It's this massive advantage that allows Rome to continue to stay atop other nations that challenge it. And with absolute historical certainty, we can say that the next 400 years, the issues with Rome will not be its external threats, but its decay from within. In this episode, Rome really takes a massive change from a dynamic republic to just another empirical kingdom. The rights of the people and the glory of Rome are just rhetoric now to be used by power brokers who control the state. The power broker at this stage is the second triumvirate, and if one of them can take power from the others, the entire Roman world is theirs. While Sulla would control, yet give power back at his death, Caesar seemed to enjoy power and be the highest in the state, yet he never wanted to undermine the foundations too much. Could it be his successor is one who's willing to undermine even the foundations of the state? While Herod is consolidating his power in Judah and planning building projects, Rome becomes a hotbed of activity between Octavian and Mark Antony. In 43 BC, Octavian, Mark Antony, and Lepidus formed the second triumvirate for a five-year period. Their first action was ruthless, and it came from the Sola playbook. They issued prescriptions for the seizure of land and wealth from at least 130 senators. This wasn't exactly done because they supported Brutus and Cassius as much as the wealth they needed and the political opponents they wanted to do away with. Cicero, famous Cicero, would die around this time. Then the second triumvirate waged war against Brutus and Cassius in the Liberators' War, and they won. After Philippi, the second triumvirate started dividing up the Roman territories among themselves. Gaul and Hispania went to Octavian. Anthony journeyed to Egypt to obtain this territory for himself, and that's when he meets Cleopatra, and the romance begins. Mark Antony would stay in Egypt long, very long, long enough to have three children with Cleopatra, and while Anthony had friends in Rome, his absence is the real issue. He's approaching 50, and Octavian is still in his 20s. One is the heir to Caesar, the other his favorite general. Lepidus gets sidelined repeatedly in these power grabs. In Egypt, Mark Antony 
claims the power and wealth of Egypt in partnership with Cleopatra. Egypt is currently the grain supplier of the bulging populace of Rome. It's this wealth that gives him power. But he stays way too long from Rome. And after a joint campaign against a rebellious force around Sicily, Mark Antony was sent against Parthia to fight to push back the Parthians after their invasion. His campaign ends in disaster, and his reputation is tarnished. He takes his forces back to Egypt to get replenished, and Anthony continues his affair with Cleopatra. But upon his return, Anthony starts to behave very un-Roman. He starts to issue onerous titles to he and his family. The first goes to his son as the king of Armenia, and then he gave Cleopatra the title Queen of Queens. And this fueled Octavian to go on the offensive in the Senate, stating Mark Antony was no longer Roman, or even faithful to Rome. And upon this moment, things started to quickly spiral out of control for Anthony. Two of his best generals defect. And then Octavian supposedly storms in the temple of the Vestal Virgins and pulls the will of Mark Antony. He reads it aloud in the Senate, in which Antony's will states he would give away Roman-controlled territories as kingdoms for his sons, to rule upon his death and designated Alexandria as a site for a tomb for him and his queen. This enraged the Senate and made Egypt the enemy of Rome. Octavian mobilized the army to destroy Mark Anthony, and at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, the naval forces of Agrippa, Octavian, and Sosius from the invasion of Judah converge on Anthony and Cleopatra. And at Actium, Cleopatra loses her fleet and Cleopatra and Anthony flee to Alexandria. In Alexandria, Mark Anthony commits suicide, and Cleopatra dies by allowing a viper to bite her, according to some sources. Octavian emerges as the strongest man in Rome, and he's very young, at the age of 32, the successor of Caesar. We learn from historians at this time that Octavian wanted to make no enemies, he did not want another civil war, but it was obvious to everyone that he was the most powerful and wealthiest man in all of Rome. He courted the Senate and the people and did everything in his power to make himself look as one chosen by the people. And it seemed every year he would gain more power. I've seen one reference to what actually happens in Rome as the government forming into a form of autocratic principate. It seemed every year he would gain more power. The facade of the Senate still occurred, but in the end, Octavian controlled the legions and the treasury, and in 27 AD, he was given the title of Augustus, meaning increase or illustrious one. He was later elected tribune for life, and he retained proconsulship roles outside of Rome, and he was granted a sole imperium within Rome itself. His proconsulship status prevented anyone else from having a triumph in Rome ending the military glory of generals to compete for the glorious triumphs in Rome down the Appian Way. And later he would be given the title of Father of the Country. Throughout his reign, Augustus funded the arts to reinforce his reign. And after all, he courted everyone's approval. And when he went to Egypt, he took on the vast gold reserves of Cleopatra into his personal treasury. He had the money to fund everything he needed, and he paid off vast sums to win over everyone, even rewriting the history books. He conducted military campaigns with Agrippa as his faithful general, yet he never, yet Agrippa never received a triumph like other previous generals. 
Only those in the Julian family or imperial families were allowed triumphs from now on. He solidified gains in Africa and Spain, and he pushed the Germania frontier north to the Elba River and eventually to the Danube. In Germania, his campaigns went well until the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest in 9 AD, when three legions under Publius Quintilius Verus were ambushed and nearly killed to the man. One account has Augustus yelling in his palace, Publius Quintilius Verus, give me back my legions. But generally at this stage, Rome settles with the Danube as the border. To the east, he retook lands from the Parthians back to the original territories and settled for a well-publicized diplomatic victory. His achievement was the retrieval of the Roman standards lost by Crassus at the Battle of Caerae. During this time, historians like to point out what came to be known as the, the Pax Romana. Not that there wasn't war for this long period of time, but he expands Roman borders and then sets up defensive lines uh, where there's no major campaigns that we're going to see. Um, you know, Rome will again invade England. Um, they'll go into Germany, but pretty much withdraw. Um, they'll go to the east in the Parthian territory and then come back again. Uh, but for hundreds of years, the borders will, will generally remain the same. Um, and there will be a peace over the area, a peace through strength um, that Rome is brokered. Augustus would have many achievements, and he would go on to build splendid palaces, temples. The month of August would be named after him, and, and he would appease the people with great contributions of money. He would live a staggering 75 years of age, and he would outlive anyone who knew the word republic. And by the time of his death in 14 AD, the memories of the Republic would be replaced with new memories instilled by Rome's first true emperor. All right, so let's dive into what has just happened. The basic rights of those in the Republic were manipulated away from them by a very powerful, extremely wealthy, manipulative, powerful individual. In the case of Rome now, the Roman institutions are essentially powerless. Augustus rules the state directly and indirectly. We have just another kingdom, or better yet, we'll use the word empire since we're dealing with many kingdoms reporting to Rome itself. And another thing to note is how technological, economic, cultural, and artistic growth starts to slow now that power and wealth is consolidated in the hands of a select few. The glory which was Rome for a 400-year period under the Republic with its freedoms and advanced culture, it doesn't end. It just slows as it turns into another very wealthy, large, corrupt, militaristic monarchy of sorts. Rome will be powerful, but it's not the same Rome that could lose 200,000 soldiers in a war and just build another army. Augustus's frustration with losing three legions in Germania would have fueled the previous Rome to raise another army, if not three more. And instead, he actually retreated to defensive positions. The civilian freedoms that Rome loses will make it unwieldy as just about any other monarchy once it runs out of money and it runs out of its very fat stolen bank account from other nations like Egypt and other client kingdoms. The story of empirical Rome, it's enjoyable, but it lacks the powerful characters of the Republic, as power is now limited to only those who take on the role of Caesar. For all of you out there that love America, it's important to understand how 
the Republic fell. For our government, the most successful in world history is modeled after the Roman Republic. And if you love America, be watchful and pray that no internal forces creep in to destroy and erode and take freedoms away from Americans. The erosion in the Roman Republic occurred over time as individuals desired to claim the power for themselves, undermining the institutions and self-controls put in place. As Americans, we must watch and pray, for we are like ancient Rome, and we dare not lose the freedoms which set it apart. Our real threat, like Rome, lies within our own borders of those who want to undermine the foundations put in place. And as Americans, we must watch and pray like watchmen on the wall. The Founding Fathers put something in place called checks and balances in our government to prevent any part, party or organization to have too much power. It's this balance of power which was put in place to make Americans never lose their freedom so that no group attains levels of power that can undermine the foundations. The Founding Fathers were, were ever interested in the disaster that befell Rome, and they provided every precaution possible. And as Americans, we must watch and pray when one party, one group, one institution, a conglomeration of groups get in place where they have too much power with the purpose of undermining the foundations and freedoms of America. We roll this episode up with an interesting quote by the Roman historian Tacitus. Like America, Romans were allowed freedoms of expression and they were permitted you know, the right to, to speak, at least for a while. But take note of the historical assessment below of Augustus by Romans at the time by Tacitus. I find their assessment in the following quotes interesting. You decide your opinion. Tacitus records two contradictory yet common views of Augustus. Here's what Tacitus writes. Intelligent people praised or criticized him in various ways. One opinion was as follows. Filial duty in a national emergency in which there was no place for law-abiding conduct had driven him to civil war, and this can neither be initiated nor maintained by decent methods. He had made many concessions to Anthony and to Lepidus for the sake of vengeance on his father's murderers. And when Lepidus grew old and lazy and Anthony's self-indulgence got the better of him, the only better possible cure for the distracted country had been government by one man. However, Augustus had put the state in order not by making himself king or dictator, but by creating the principate. The empire's frontiers were on the ocean or distant rivers, armies, provinces, fleets, the whole system was interrelated. Roman citizens were protected by law. Provincials were decently treated. Rome itself had been lavishly beautified. Force had been sparingly used, merely to preserve peace for the majority. According to the second opposing opinion, this is what Elsie said, filial duty and national crisis had been merely pretext. In actual fact, the motive of Octavian, the future Augustus, was lust for power. There had certainly been peace, but it was bloodstained peace of disasters and assassinations. Upon his death in 14 AD, some of the last words spoken by Augustus were, did I play the part well? And it so goes with how he courted the people, and he courted the senators, and he courted everyone. 
but eventually the power rested in his hands and the republic ended. Regardless of your opinion, as Tacitus had multiple opinions even in the time of Rome, Augustus isn't going anywhere and he controls the Roman Empire. And in the next episode, we cover Herod and his preoccupations in Jerusalem and we learn why some historians will later call him Herod the Great. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.